Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Come and Read, Interpretive Approaches to the Gospel of John is a unique volume that both introduces numerous interpretive approaches to the Bible and includes examples in action with contributions from top scholars in the field. The book takes up three different passages throughout John's Gospel, John 1, 1-11, John 10, and John 20, and sets four different approaches to each passage side by side. The three selected texts move readers through the Gospel story and represent the three major subgenres featured in the Gospel. John's prologue is written in poetic style, John 10 represents a major discourse, and John 20 takes the form of dramatic narrative prose. Each section of the book includes readings on the focus passage from the same four interpretive perspectives, intertextual, sociocultural, rhetorical, and narrative. These approaches are broadly conceived to showcase varieties present even within approaches, and how these ways of reading are connected to and benefit from one another. Overall, this book provides insight into current interpretive practices on the Gospel of John and the rest of the Bible. It demonstrates how to use these methods effectively, illustrating not only the value of using a variety of approaches for interpretation, but also how methods impact the interpretations rendered. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today we have the special treat of talking to three biblical scholars, Drs. Alicia Myers, Lindsay Jodry, and Angela Parker, about the new book they've all contributed to, Come and Read, Interpretive Approaches to the Gospel of John. Dr. Alicia Myers is Associate Professor of New Testament and Greek at the Divinity School at Campbell University. Dr. Lindsay Jodry is Assistant Director of Digital Learning at Princeton Theological Seminary. And Dr. Angela Parker is Assistant Professor of New Testament and Greek at McAfee. Everyone, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I wonder if we could begin this interview maybe by um, you just sharing a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Dr. Myers, why don't you kick us off? Um, Well, I mean, my story's, well, probably everybody's story's weird. My story's a little weird. I started going to church in high school. So I didn't even know you could get a degree in biblical studies until I went to college. And I thought I was going to be a youth minister. It's my plan. Um, And I loved working with youth, but I loved my biblical studies classes. And then my school is Indiana Wesleyan University. They taught them as inductive Bible study classes. And I loved those classes so much. And I wanted to like give my students all this detail and everything. And they just they were not interested in going as deep as I wanted to go. So I decided um, I needed to think about my calling and, and kind of where else I was going to end up and landed on deciding to teach not youth in the church, but teaching um, students in college, university, and now in a divinity school setting about the Bible. Yeah, that's awesome. What about you, Dr. Jodry? 
Uh, well, my story is um, a little bit different um, than my friend um, Alicia's, uh, Dr. Myers. Um, I grew up uh, around the Bible from as early as I can remember. Uh, my uh, parents both work in the church, and so I've just kind of been around the Bible forever. Um, but I think I, I really dug into wanting to study the Bible um, as a way to read it um, a little bit more critically uh, than the way that I that I grew up. Um, and so it was kind of a way to sort of question um, and push back against a little bit um, than, than the way that I was, was brought up. And so those questions kind of guided um, my pursuit of biblical studies as like a critical field. Um, and that just sort of pushed me on a trajectory towards um, towards biblical studies as like a profession. Um, and then I really found that kind of um, to, to kind of bear fruit in my PhD studies um, at Baylor and just sort of, sort of uh, took off from there. I also have sort of always wanted to continue to work in the church. Um, I am ordained, but I don't have um, a pastoral sort of home but I sort of have a pastoral call, I think, in my teaching work as well. And so I really enjoy working and teaching at a seminary. Um, and so I, I sort of find myself having a pastoral presence, even as I teach um, how to interpret scripture. So I really love that, too. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. And what about you, Dr. Parker? Oh, this is so lovely to listen to. I similar to my colleagues, I I grew up in church. And so I've always been around the biblical text, but it was interesting. I grew up Baptist. And so I actually was licensed and ordained as a Baptist minister before attending seminary because, you know, Baptists, we do that. And so I went into seminary after knowing that I did not want to pastor a church, but I was always adept at teaching Bible in church. So it just made sense to begin a career in biblical scholarship. But I will say as an African-American woman, I had my professors in my own divinity school during my seminary time tell me that as Black folk, we did not do Bible. They often said languages were difficult for for you all. And it was a journey just even toward the PhD after the master's. But mm. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's dive into the, uh, the, the work, Come and Read, Interpretive Approaches to the Gospel of John. This work sets forward four hermeneutical approaches to the Gospel of John. And so, yeah, I would love to just kind of talk through, um, like, how this book came to be, and then um, really, like, what what are you hoping to accomplish through this collection? Well, it started um, on the third floor of Taylor Hall at Campbell University because I was putting together a session for the Jehanine Literature section of the Society of Biblical Literature. It's a lot of words, and. I knew we wanted to focus on a singular passage in John because we have better conversations that way. The sessions are more fun to attend and participate in. And so I think at that point I decided let's do John 10. And Lindsay worked at Campbell at that point. So I <laughs> called her in and said, what should this look like? What, what could we do? What kind of session would you be interested in, in doing? So 
we kind of brainstormed and called it like rhetorical perspectives on John 10, but it was rhetorical in a really broad sense of the word, like how does this passage work kind of way. So we had a narrative approach, a classic kind of Greco-Roman approach, intertextuality, which was really Old Testament in John 10, and then an imperial Roman imperial approach. So two of those essays actually ended up being in the volume, and that's Catherine Williams's um, on the Old Testament in John 10, and then Warren Carter's on Roman imperial readings in John 10. And then um, the other two, they ended up not being able to contribute, but we we commissioned other people to write. But it was George Parsenius who did the Greco-Roman, and then Chris Skinner did the narrative reading. Um, that's how it started, and the session was the session was a blast. Like, we had so much fun. And so, Lindsay and I, you want to kind of jump in, and Lindsay can talk about how it how it developed from there. Yeah, well, I mean, just when we were at the session, I mean, it was very lively. And a lot of times at the JLET sessions at SBL, we have a lot of lively conversation. But we were just struck by, I mean, John 10 is a great passage, and there's so much that you can talk about. But it was just really apparent that um, people came at this text with so many different ideas and so many different questions. And Alicia and I just got to talking about how uh, rich this text was and how um, how obvious it was that uh, the questions that you are asking of this text um, sort of determine the reading that you are going to come out with. And we, you know, were obviously um, attentive to our teaching at this time. And we, w- we were probably in between classes, you know, talking about this in our, in, in Alicia's office. And so um, we were talking about how um, this could be really helpful for students to think about how, when you, when you come to the task of biblical interpretation, that the questions that you ask of texts are really important um, for the reading and that that's not something to be afraid of or to run from, but that that's a really important um, interpretive tool and that that can actually help um, us as we sort of equip ourselves for the task of biblical interpretation. And so we thought, how cool would that be to sort of lean into that um, in putting together a resource for biblical interpretation? And so we thought, well, why stop with uh, rhetorical approaches Um, Why don't we think about um, more broadly um, painting different interpretive approaches um, and helping sort of lay out a palette of the ways that we interpret scripture, the different um, things that might be on our hearts or our minds when we come to the Bible, um, and then actually being able to demonstrate um, to readers, to students, to interested readers of the Bible, not only what questions we might ask, but what that might look like then for a scholar to ask those certain questions and then to produce um, a reading. Um, And so then that's what we did. So we thought about who do we know who um, is a good scholar who could do, ask a certain kind of question, perform a certain kind of reading um, and do it in a way that um, would actually be uh, legible (laughs) um, and digestible to a broader range of readers. And then that's what we we tried to put together. Yeah. And we really didn't want to rank them because so many times you'll get like, well, the first thing is the real biblical studies, which is like historical critical, right? You get these like classic approaches and then they usually get ranked down, right? And then last is uh, what 
Lindsay described in the introduction as standpoint criticisms or some of the other things. You and get, I was like, we're not using this term. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> criticisms and stuff. And so we really wanted to be intentional and say like, no, we're just, we're going to put these four approaches side by side and yeah. we're not trying to rank them. It's like one's more authentic than the other, but they're both, when they're all when done well, are they're borrowing things from one another and they're all producing important insights and observations that are relevant uh, across the board. Yes, absolutely. So this book then takes all four of those approaches and covers three texts, John 1, 1 through 18, the prologue, and then John 10, and then John 20, um, kind of dividing up and demonstrating each one of those approaches. So let's dive into the chapters that were contributed um, by all of you. So Dr. Parker, let's begin with your chapter. Um, In this chapter, you tackle a womanist post-colonial reading of John 20, 1 through uh, 11 through 18, arguing that Mary Magdalene serves as a symbol of an inclusive national consciousness. Can you talk to us um, a little bit like about that argument and how you argued for it? Yes, of course. I think that one of the aspects for me as a biblical scholar is to see what has what have the classical approaches actually bequeathed to us in the history of scholarship. And so one of the interesting things as I was reading different commentaries about that particular passage was the idea of the change of status between Mary Magdalene and Jesus, because now Jesus is risen from the grave and he is in a different form. And so the way that classical scholars begin to approach Jesus is the idea of Jesus becoming universal. Jesus and Mary, their relationship is fundamentally changed. So she cannot hold on to him in the way that she was used to holding on to him before resurrection. And it was interesting to me to think about the way scholarship has developed along the change of status of relationship that actually takes Jesus away from his Judaism. And I argue that when we dismiss Jesus's Judaism and say that now that he's risen from the dead, it's almost like he's no longer Jewish and the relationship has changed, that we can easily come into some of the difficulties in today's day and age about what it means to only think about Jesus as universal risen Lord without thinking about the various people that made up the Palestinian area. So as I engage my own womanist identity and engage even what's been happening with politics since 2018, even to the present, I'm basically arguing that we do a disservice to our readings of biblical texts and specifically the John 20 passage when we don't take into account the idea of multiple consciousness that are occurring even as we're reading our biblical text and we only begin to view Jesus from a completely universal standpoint, which then leads us into these problematic areas where people feel as though they can pick up any kind of automatic weaponry and begin to 
try to eliminate Jewish folks from even the face of the earth. So I really am tackling the problems that we've been left with by readings of this particular passage that makes Jesus universal. How do we enter those conversations a little bit more and more nuancedly? Wow, that's fascinating. Are there any, just off the cuff, are there any other um, ways that the Gospel of John kind of, um, like that, that you would read the Gospel of John in that light? I think with the Samaritan woman mm-hmm. in John chapter 4, that's another area where we can begin to have conversations about inclusive national consciousness as well. Because you have surface readings of John chapter 4 that pit the woman as a, an adulterous woman or, or something along those lines without thinking about the conversation that she has with Jesus and her own background in Assyrian identity or even her even as Jesus talks about five husbands is he really talking about husbands, but is he talking about empires that have been coming in and over the Palestinian area and what that looks like with the intermingling of people? So I think that the Gospel of John is ripe for broader conversations that allow us to actually begin to think nuancedly about politics and our own diverse communities, stories, and consciousness, even in the context of the United States of America and the context of the various churches and denominations that we find ourselves in. All right, Dr. Jodry, let's turn to your chapter. In in your um, in your reading here, how do you tackle the dualistic language in John, particularly um, in the prologue when it's applied to queer theory? So this is this is your. Um, this is your example of a social cultural reading. So would you mind talking us through your argument? Yeah, sure. So <clears throat> it's a pretty, I mean, whenever we're trying to deal with a queer approach, um, it's difficult. I mean, queer theory is notoriously difficult to define, um, which is partly the point. Um, uh, a queer approach um, Queer, queer theory was, uh, in in part, uh, not supposed to be uh, a bona fide academic discipline um, when it was when it was first uh, set up, uh, because uh, part of the point of a queer approach is that it's supposed to stand up against things that are approved and valid and um, sort of. Um, uh, the, these things that are uh, kind of tick the boxes, so to speak, by um, the the um, status quo. And so it's kind of funny to say that um, I'm applying queer theory in in a way that is a critical theory, but um, but but here we are. But I could say that I'm appropriating some queer values. Um, and so what I do is I take these values of transgression and resistance, um, and I sort of play with them. And I sort of say, if I take these values of transgression and resistance, and I look at this um, kind of long-held debate in Johannine studies of uh, what, what do we do with this um, uh, dualism that is apparent in John's language, uh, 
how could these queer values help us to understand what's happening in John's rhetoric? And my argument then is that these values um, of transgression and resistance, we can see that in John's rhetoric, uh, we can see that um, John's rhetoric actually transgresses and resists the dualistic categories that it appears at first to presuppose. So um, we can have the value of revelation, for example, um, revelation uh, transgresses um, the um, it, it, the divine realm uh, and the world. Um, it, revelation transgresses uh, that distance between the divine realm and the world. And the value of love resists the division between insiders and outsiders. So you see those two um, places where there was division or there was distance. There are these... Um, there are these places of transgression and resistance uh, where um, John's rhetorical movement uh, sort of pushes those things not to have so much distance between them. Um, and so that's sort of the argument that I make. Um, it's a queer argument in the sense that um, there's sort of this movement um, against those where so much of the scholarship um pulls out the the polar opposites and sees that these things are mm. um, separate. Um, but uh, the queer movement moves in, in uh, the direction of, of seeing uh, the direction of, of pushing them together. Um, and it falls into the category of the social sociocultural uh, reading because uh, that category um, pulls on uh, categories of power, and categories of human experience um, and things like that. And so uh, queer readings fall into that category because, uh, yeah, because that, that's the, the kind of um, experience that you pull onto. And so um, queer theory and queer categories fall into that, um, yeah, into that, that category. Yeah. For for you too, if uh, if you weren't just tackling the prologue, would you have gone to other texts in John as well? Like if you were to expand this chapter, yeah, I mean the the prologue is where I saw the I mean the the dualism. Well, I mean, I guess actually <laughs> the prologue is where I I mean it's the text that was assigned. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, that's why I went there. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know um, if I was going to just do a queer reading of John. I guess I don't know what I would say. Um, yeah, what I would find. Um, other other people, and I say this a little bit, and um, or I point this out a little bit in the footnotes. There are other like um, elements of. I don't even know if I would necessarily call them queer, but they're. Um, other, yeah, I guess I would call them queer in terms of just, uh, like, there's a theme of ambiguity, for example, in things like um, discipleship or characters that don't clearly fall into, um, like, is this a good character? Is this a perfect disciple? Is this not a perfect disciple? Like, John plays with um, a lot of these themes of, is this good? Is this bad? Is this... Um, is this a good example or not a good example? Um, all throughout. Um, and John teases out these themes. Um, I think it's interesting. I mean, this this whole um, experiment is interesting because um, 
it was just an experiment. Like we literally gave the authors, including ourselves, like, please take these certain questions or these certain methods, like to these certain texts and kind of see what, what comes out, you know, like see what, what certain things that you see. Um, and it's kind of, I mean, it, it is a, it is a, um, interesting t- thing to see what, um, what emerges. Um, I think, I think the, uh, the whole, uh, the whole concept of incarnation that is obviously a theme, um, in the gospel of John, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't, um, I mean, I did explore it some, obviously the, the theme of transgressing the divine, uh, realm and, um, bridging the gap between the divine realm and the world. I mean, obviously, um, the incarnation does that. Um, but I mean, that's embodied like in the person of Jesus. I wonder if there could be more, if there would be more moments of finding that, um, personified in different ways. Um, you know, throughout, throughout the gospel. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm just trying to think of where I would see that, um, or where I would see that kind of passed along or highlighted, Mm. um, even in terms of like, I mean, I'm thinking of like the bread of life discourse and, you know, maybe, I mean, obviously there's Eucharistic language and like the eating of Jesus's flesh in the bread of life discourse, but like, what does that, how does that, how does that take on new meaning if we have this breaking down of that dualistic um, motif in mind as well of just the divine realm too? I, like, I don't know, you know, if, if, if somehow there's this um, rhetorical move in mind of somehow in Jesus's body, the one who's, you know, like begotten of the father and these things. Um, I don't know, but now I'm just talking and I haven't done any of this. <laughs> right, right, right. No, <laughs> not through any of this, but yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that would be a, a fascinating exploration. Thank you for, for thinking about that. Um, let's go. So let's let's wrap up with Dr. Myers and, and your rhetorical chapter, Discerning Characters on Jesus's words as they're found in John 10. Like, wh- what do you argue about Jesus's speech, particularly in John 10? So I was trying to kind of blend classical Greco-Roman rhetorical approaches with something that's called new rhetoric. Um, And they're very similar, except classical rhetorical approaches are like, how do authors or speakers, like what are the techniques they use in order to persuade their audience? And new rhetoric says, that's great. Let's keep those. But let's also think about the audience as people instead of just objects that you persuade. So I was trying to think of, um, use that term character because in Greek, ethos and ethic is the word for character. So I wanted to reflect on how Jesus, like what were the techniques the gospel of John gives Jesus to be persuasive? And also like, are they ethical means of persuasion? Because something my students, I talk to them a lot about when we study the gospel of John, right? So I didn't grow up in the church when I was little, but when I started going to church, everybody says, go read John first, right? It's the easy gospel. But if you read it closely, I don't think any gospel is easy, but I don't definitely think John is easy because I feel like whenever somebody asks Jesus a question in John, they don't understand what he's talking about. 
he makes it harder for them to understand. Like the characters in the text, he amps it up. Um, so mm-hmm. I think he does that in John 10 as well. So I wanted to look at like, what are the rhetorical techniques? And we have all this discussion how how Jesus speaks boldly. Um, so the word is parasia, like he speaks with boldness, frankly, and openly. Um, but he also uses figurative speech, which are paroimia. Um, John doesn't use the word parable, he uses paroimia. They're very comparable. Um, but paroimia often are accused of being like secretive speech. So the paroimia would be like the language comparing the religious leaders to bad shepherds, right? So that it's figurative language instead of just direct speech saying, you guys are, aren't leading well. He calls them bad shepherds. Um, so I wanted to explore, gosh, like why, what is the effect of that? Who is actually being persuaded? And is Jesus really speaking ethically in this moment? Um, and I think it really comes down to, like, who is Jesus actually speaking to in the Gospel of John? And I don't think it's actually the characters in the text. It's the audience listening to the Gospel. Um, so they have the keys to unlock the paramia that Jesus is using to understand the figurative language that he's using. And I don't ultimately think Jesus's speech is meant really to persuade characters within the text yet, um, that his, nothing he's going to do is going to persuade them, um, but it's meant to persuade the audience. And I think that's true for the Gospel of John, because if Jesus could persuade people by his presence, the crucifixion and resurrection becomes super, like, what's the point of it? Um, but Jesus says, you know, when I am lifted up, I'll bring all, to, all people to myself. So, so yeah, so I think that that helps us understand not just the techniques Jesus is using and how ancient people would have understood these techniques, but also um, to try to get at a little bit of like, how can Jesus be such a jerk or why is he such a jerk in the Gospel of John? He doesn't really speak, seem to speak ethically. And then if we understand who the target audience really is, which is the listeners of the Gospel, we can understand a little better what is happening in these scenes, such as John 10. Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. So by, by listeners, do you mean the readers of John for all time or yeah. like the what? I don't okay. think you can nail it down. Right. <laughs> I okay. think the audiences. I get a little nervous when people say like, I'm going to find the authorial audience. That is a great goal. I'm just not convinced that you can do it unless you say this is a hypothetical audience and I'm going to, but, but audiences are necessarily pluralistic, right? Like you, you never just have one person. So mm-hmm. how do you, you've always got to, a bunch of people in some sense who are engaging. And I really do think the gospel of John expects itself, like the author, whoever the author was expected this to be heard and reheard, read and reread. Um, so that there is kind of a multiplicity assumed in the, in the composition, but I won't, I won't get into why I think that here. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Well, thank you everybody for kind of summarizing your arguments. Thank you for, um, joining us today, but before we wrap up this podcast, are there any kind of final concluding words or anything else you'd like to point out for our audience? Um, I'd like to say as a professor, like as somebody teaching and I teach students who either are pastors or they're going to be pastors because I teach at a divinity school. And sometimes they're really nervous about encountering explicitly different approaches, like reading the Bible in different and new ways and that there possibility that there's multiple meanings. Um, and in particular, I have students who really struggle with queer theory, or if I say womanist to them, they get nervous. 
Um, and so I have found Lindsay and Angela's work extremely helpful because they're they're insightful and really interesting, but also approachable. Um, so it's a text that I can assign or that somebody could pick up and read um, and find a way into um, approaches that might be a little intimidating or just something brand new for them on the surface. Yeah, I would echo that. I think that it's very important to um, allow students an opportunity to begin to read different approaches to a text that is so quote unquote familiar to them and to begin to enter into just the conversations that occur when we think about contemporary context and present day readers with these texts. And so I just, I really do appreciate a text like this that allows an opportunity for students who are being trained in pastoral ministry to think as I keep saying nuancely about the text. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that too. And I think um, I really liked um, and appreciated how um, Alicia, how you um, set the stage with the example. I'm pretty sure you were the one who wrote this part <laughs> of John seven. Um, and it's an exercise that um, I, I'm pretty sure um, I learned from you, you know, um, and, and both of us um, got from uh, Michael Gorman's, um, you know, very popular survey exercise and, you know, the, the very popular exegesis exercise in a classroom. But just, you know, reading the Bible together in community with other people, you learn very quickly that different people um, experience different things when we come to the Bible. Um, and I think that um, learning that that is the gift of reading the Bible together in community and that that is something to cherish, um, the sooner that we can learn that together, especially, um, you know, those of us who work in seminary context or are training people uh, to work, especially in church context, the, the sooner that we can that we can learn to cherish that about reading together in community, um, the better off that we'll be. Um, and so I love that the book starts off that way. Um, and even though we may, we may uh, want to move into the more academic questions at points, um, sort of rooting in that, hey, we're people, we're humans, uh, we come with our fears, with our questions, with our human lives and pain, um, I think that that's really great. And so, you know, beginning with that, you know, you know, it, it, we all come and, and it doesn't take, you know, it takes one sitting down with one text and saying, what do you see here um, to see uh, that, that beauty uh, that we all come and read and, and see different things. So, so I really, I really love that. And I hope, I hope we can all enjoy that whenever we open up the Bible. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you all so much for joining us today. Th this book is an amazing feat. It has many great contributors. Uh, you know, I wish we could host them all, but this interview has been an exemplary sample to whet your appetite for this stimulating and thorough recent work on interpreting John's gospel. So to everybody listening, go grab a copy today. Until next time, I'm your host, Jonathan Wright.